welcome my name is neha vasakha and i'm the host of the podcast series the feminist city this is offered by vidhi center for legal policy and in the series we think about cities our relationships with the city and exclusions in the city please note that this episode has references to gender based violence and may be triggering kindly be mindful while listening to it Welcome to the final episode of the season of the Feminist City podcast series. We plan to go on a brief hiatus before we come back again with a new season where we continue to have conversations about the cities we live in from a feminist perspective. The questions about how urban space is produced, who designs the cities, who are cities designed for, how does the built environment impact our life? the trajectories of urban development the politics of urban development finally how all of these things affect the everyday lives of everyday people particularly girls women gender and sexual minorities in the city what i intend to do in this episode is a sort of taking stock of how this podcast started the questions that it was attempting to answer and what i've learned over the course of this incredible experience of being able to speak with people who think about cities who think around cities who work on and live in cities from a variety of perspectives and i think it has been an incredibly and deeply humbling experience of having some of these conversations that have radically shifted the way that i look at my city and cities in general i think in some ways it's fitting because we started the first episode as a form of a summary episode i guess where the questions that i posited were about how space itself was constructed uh, why it was important for us to think about urban space what does it mean to be a feminist when it comes to thinking about the city why is feminist urbanism important and finally what does it mean to dare to dream about a feminist uh, utopia what a feminist city could look like and i'm happy to report that while some of the questions that i had were answered marginally uh, this project is a large and ongoing one and i don't think that there are going to be conclusive answers but there were definitely a few themes that emerged for me and that's what i think i would like to spend my time unpacking in this episode so before i start doing that i want to give you a little bit of a background on this project this project started a couple of years ago in the aftermath of yet another highly publicized and sensationalized case of a very brutal attack against a woman in an indian city uh, this was 2019 and the case was uh, the priyanka reddy case in hyderabad where a young veterinarian was sexually assaulted and murdered by a group of men now what happened afterwards is even more horrifying if that's even possible because the hyderabad police conducted an extrajudicial killing of the four accused in the case now we don't know if the people who were killed were the people who harmed priyanka because a trial was never conducted but 
this was a case of personal interest to me uh because as a young woman growing up in a city these are the kinds of uh cases that are the stuff of nightmares right uh but it was also one of professional interest because it a lot of the conversation that uh happened after this case and the response was alarming of course because uh the actions of the hyderabad police were widely welcomed and celebrated and they were hailed as heroes which is uh, extremely dangerous because the actions of the police on this case were highly illegal and uh, completely unconstitutional right so it just reminded me of similarities between a case that happened almost 10 years before that which was the nirbhaya case in 2012 during which time i was just a young law student and following what happened after the nirbhaya case was in my living memory the first time watching widespread public outrage and protests and conversations that were happening at a time where i could follow them at that point the js verma committee was established and they submitted a report and the criminal law amendment act was passed by the government of the time which provided for stringent punishments and recognized a whole range of offenses uh, that were previously not part of the ipc such as stalking and sexual harassment as a criminal offense now they did not criminalize marital rape despite uh, this recommendation and it was just interesting to me to see that almost a decade later similar kinds of demands were being made in 2019 which was stringent punishments the death penalty and calls for greater surveillance infrastructure such as cctv cameras increased policing presence but despite the fact that almost less than 10 years ago these were the demands that were made and quite a few of them had actually been implemented uh things really didn't seem to have changed so it sort of got me thinking about what else was being missed in this conversation now we have discussed criminal approaches to the question of violence against women in public spaces extensively in an episode with Alok Prasanna Kumar earlier in the season and i would definitely encourage everyone to go check it out because we discuss what happened the limitations of criminal law approaches and why we need to reorient how we think about role law can play in so far as protecting women from patriarchal violence now cut to 2021 there is yet another case of an extremely brutal attack against a young woman in a city that's highly publicized and has spurred a global conversation about public space i'm of course talking about the case of sara everard who is a 33 year old woman who was on her way home from a friend's house and did all the right things right she was walking in a heavily populated london street at 9 pm she had called her boyfriend and informed him that she was leaving except she was kidnapped and brutally murdered and the accused in this case is a metropolitan police officer so you have a case that happened in march 2021 which is last month where the prime accused of a gruesome attack is a police officer himself and while there are some calls and some understanding about the fact of of uh, the gendered nature of exclusionary public spaces in cities and london for instance you'd expect the things are slightly better there but it seems not to be the case 
because while london mayor sadiq khan talked about and acknowledged that the way women use and experience public space in the city is nothing like the way men and boys use and experience public space in the city the responses seem to be mixed and disappointing at best even by the uh, uk government there have been calls for better lighting in public areas but beyond that there seem to be the same old tired uh, responses such as okay let's install more surveillance infrastructure let's have plain clothes policemen in areas where nightlife is abound which is quite ridiculous if you think about the fact that the person accused in this case is a police officer himself so what is exactly being missed in this conversation that seems to be that time and again year after year decade after decade the same old tired and broken solutions are repeated like old wine in a new bottle but nobody is actually listening to uh, feminist geographers planners and activists who have been talking about public space for decades now a lot of the research that i had begun to do in this project actually comes from the 60s and the 70s so the ideas that we've been discussing over the course of this series and in this project are not new they are at least 40 years old so so what is going on i started the series with an episode that discussed and unpacked the question of why we need feminist urbanism and i think It's fitting that I would conclude the season with an episode that continues to answer that but far more urgently because over the course of this project my own understanding of the city has grown exponentially particularly in part due to the conversations I've been privileged enough to have with the amazing people that I interviewed on this podcast now before I delve into the key themes that emerged to me and sort of summarize my takeaways from this entire exercise so far i would like to make a disclaimer and this disclaimer is something that i think um holds true and i've made this multiple times in episodes before is that even though conversations around public urban space and women's access to it and the threat of patriarchal male violence against women and girls in cities seems to happen in the aftermath of one or two highly publicized cases of particularly brutal attacks the nature of violence against women and girls is such that it's deeply endemic and extremely pervasive as a recent report released by the world health organization and its partners last month shows one in 3 women around 736 million are subjected to physical or sexual violence by an intimate partner a number that seems to have been largely unchanged over the past decade and it particularly affects young women and girls where one in four young women between the ages of 15 to 24 years of age have been in a relationship have already experienced violence by an intimate partner by the time they reach their mid 20s now in south asia it boasts the highest prevalence rates of intimate partner violence ranging between 33% to 51% so much so that the world health organization's director general notes that violence against women is an endemic problem in every country and culture causing harm to millions of women and their families and has been exacerbated by the covid-19 pandemic he also notes that this cannot be stopped with a vaccine and that it needs deep rooted and sustained efforts in order to eradicate i think the conditions that sort of makes this kind of male violence against women possible in the first place now even as i highlight this 
it's important to understand that the cases that we are outraged by and i'm not denying that these are not something that we should be outraging on we should however i think it's important to note that the cases that generate this kind of response are only a few amongst the numerous cases that go unreported or underreported or completely seem to have um fallen through the cracks without any public conversation whatsoever and the key culprit to this seems to be media bias particularly that engulfs english media in india in particular journalists have pointed out how there is a people like us bias in their newsrooms which is that whenever there is a case of male violence against a woman or a girl usually it is those cases which have an excessive urban centric focus uh focusing on a woman who is young able bodied belonging to an upper class or upper caste background and conforms to a particular type of stereotype of a middle class woman who is just going about her day and often conforming to stereotypes of who the good woman is did she do all the right things that you do in order to avoid any kind of violence and despite that she was attacked so the reason i say this is because even the term women safety can be critiqued that it shifts focus say of safety on the shoulders or the burden of women safety on women themselves and therefore we should use the term patriarchal violence against women and girls or male violence against women or girls however even these can be simplistic because it's never as simple as male violence against a woman or a girl i think there are so many more factors that are in play particularly in the case of women who belong to marginalized communities such as dalit bahujan and adivasi women in this case caste and gender cannot be delinked in fact we have to understand violence against women and girls from dalit bahujan and adivasi communities as a caste based crime just as much as it is a gender based crime and the same thing applies even for working class women the same thing applies for women who belong to the lgbtqi community now i think one example that sort of comes out to me um where it's never as simple as sexual violence or male violence against women or girls is in the case of adivasi women particularly in places like bastar where a lot of sexual violence has been documented that goes alongside repressive practices by the law enforcement officials especially against women from these communities who are anti mining tribal activists and here we have to understand sexual violence against women in line with the politics of resource exploitation by global conglomerates as well as state oppression and most recently in an extremely disturbing case of hinme markam who was violently arrested and slapped with a case of uapa on the international women's day in march which is last month at an event where she was going to speak out against the sexual abuse of adivasi women and was going to commemorate the lives of two young adivasi women who were physically and sexually assaulted by the chatisgarh police and subsequently took their own lives i have included a lot of links uh, that accompany the reading list with this episode and i would definitely urge you to peruse them to understand the complex context within which we have to understand male violence against women and girls how the role of the police operates so for instance where there is a case of 
police and law enforcement officials who are committing violence against women from the transgender community then this is not a simple case of sexual violence this is a case where transphobia is at play similarly there was another case that was really horrifying of a a young 21 year old woman who committed suicide after being put through conversion therapy by her family so this case of violence from the family is not simply a case of violence against a woman but it's about queer phobia or homophobia that's also at play so the reason i think i'm reiterating all of these caveats that we have to keep in mind is that when i started working on this project i made a very conscious decision not to frame this conversation merely as a gender based issue but as a feminist issue the reason i call or make this distinction is that feminism is about engaging with hierarchies of power and hierarchies of oppression it isn't just about understanding something that affects women in a simplistic manner but comes with an understanding of an intersectional approach that recognizes and acknowledges the fact that women who make up 50% of the population have very very different and divergent backgrounds and that while certain things unite this group as a class there are many differences and often conflicting points that do emerge in terms of which class of women is demanding what and it's really important for us to keep these kinds of politics in mind because if your interventions in the city are beneficial to only upper class or upper caste women that's not a feminist intervention or if a solution that's being posited is harmful to people of different communities even men of different communities such as the way in which conversations around love jihad or conversations where we penalize working class men and paint them as potential assaulters as we discuss in the episode with dr seha anavarapu that's not a feminist intervention either ultimately the feminist approach is about harm reduction and if your solution causes harm to another vulnerable group in the city that's not a feminist intervention so with that i think the first thing that i came to understand is that popular notions that surround the question of safety are not only defunct but quite actively harmful and i think the first takeaway for me was to think about the city not as a passive site where things happen but as an active participant in the context of male violence against women and girls in the city now as a child i was told a story about an epic fight between an elephant and a crocodile and i remember the word it was called sthanabalam in telugu which means that a locational advantage that the power of who is going to win between the elephant and the crocodile both powerful you know creatures in their own rights was about which turf the fight was being held on and while i was thinking about my learnings on this podcast it was that question of turf is what i kept coming back to that the turf where this kind of violence takes place is not the woman's turf it's not the girl's turf it's definitely not the turf of a gender minority now why is this relevant it's relevant because the city is not some background that's just where these instances of violence are taking place it's an active participant it produces this violence and how does it produce its violence it produces its violence by 
refusing to take into account the body politics of 50% of the population or even more when we think about persons with disability when we think about elders when we think about children and not just women and this was so poignantly explained by Deepa Pawar founder of Anubhuti Trust in the episode where we discuss the issue of urban youth particularly the issues and challenges faced by communities of nomadic tribes and denotified tribes in the city where reliance on public restrooms isn't a matter of convenience but a matter of public health we discussed the way in which women are systemically dehydrated it's a public health crisis primarily affecting the women who use the city and affect the city who actually keep the city clean i've included a link of a video where paurakarmikas in bangalore talk about their experiences about how while they work from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. without drinking water they don't drink water because then they will have to use restroom and there are no restrooms available this subjects them to gruesome indignities of not being able to relieve themselves and persistent health hazards the fact that these women continue to work in the city keep our city clean and are failed by not only the people who benefit from their work but by the government agencies that are involved and exploit them in this manner should be extremely angering to us and this is also something that was pointed out by Dr Sneha Anavarapu Dr Shilpa Phadke as well as Dr Saryun Natarajan all of whom pointed out that women in the city rely on public infrastructure so the lack of public infrastructure makes the stuff not conducive or even safe for women and girls in the city now we have seen issues where even in the presence of infrastructure or availability of restrooms the fact that they charge money to use these restrooms the fact that they are shut during nights or during times where i don't know the city deems that women should not be out in public spaces to use them is deeply discriminatory to women who are in the city who are working in the city now what does this do to women's opportunities here is where in the conversation with sneha anavarapu we discussed the fact that women cannot participate in entire industries such as transportation driving taxis or autos or being delivery workers because in order to do that a mobile uh, kind of job you need the presence of a robust sanitation infrastructure not in one area but across the city which is not the same problem that men face because their body politics dictates that they can pretty much openly defecate in the city if they need to without the same kinds of risks that women will have to undertake so in a very real way uh the city completely excludes women from numerous employment opportunities now this is also true for platform workers because our imagination of platform economy is and or the gig economy is of those involved in driving work but that's not really the case women often participate in the platform economy in care work or beauty services which are more aligned to domestic services which are again underpaid and undercompensated in comparison 
this is also something that deeply affects migrant workers and migrant women in the city because the lack of safe and adequate housing and the lack of critical urban infrastructure whether it is water supply whether it's drainage whether it's sanitation leaves where the state has completely left this up and sort of washed their hands off leaves space open for private players to profiteer at the expense of vulnerable populations in the city these are some examples of the ways in which the city is not a passive site it's an active participant so we have to think about the city not as just brick and stone but as a player in our everyday lives as something that's alive as something that is constantly mobile as something that is in play at all times something that helped me think about this concept very clearly is a wonderful book called the rape of sita by lindsay colin and this book was banned immediately on publication in mauritius however i would highly recommend everybody to get a copy and read it particularly a chapter where she unpacks the conditions that make rape possible for a woman it makes for a very difficult reading so i would definitely uh, provide a trigger warning to those who would like to read it that it can be very very triggering however if you're interested in reorienting how you can think about the environment not as a passive observer but as an active participant i would definitely recommend reading this chapter because in that she poses a poignant question that if a woman is on the run from someone who is a predator and she sees a vehicle that's coming down the road should she stop the vehicle or go run and hide in the bushes no this is extremely sad but it's also the truth that you don't know who you can stop to ask for help which is the case with the police right and i think it's very important for us to unpack the assumptions as to what we are told as to what protects us and what actually protects us now the second question i think that sort of came out to me in addition to say an individual way of thinking about the issue of safety or protection of women from male violence in the city which is that freedom is not inextricable from safety and that we have to think about freedom in a much more nuanced manner and this brings me to the deeply important and necessary question of social division and segregation and discrimination that women face not just as women but as women belonging to specific communities our cities are not only socially divided but spatially segregated now as i've mentioned before a feminist approach engages with hierarchies of power and oppression um even if they don't seem to be directly affecting women in particular but let me assure you they do in my episode with dr navin bharati it became extremely clear over the course of him discussing the research that he has done where they studied caste based segregation and religion based segregation in bengaluru in particular to show that the trajectories of urban development in the city are rooted in caste it is beyond pale to ignore the fact that economic or job opportunities access to land and house ownership in an urbanizing city belong to upper caste communities who are able to migrate to the cities easily now why is this important to talk about it is important to talk about because a highly segregated city is a city that has a unequal and deeply exclusionary trajectories of urban development it means that if you live in a neighborhood your opportunities for 
personal, social and economic development are going to be significantly affected by the neighborhood you belong to. Now, this is difficult to understand if you belong to a neighborhood where you don't have these problems. But if you belong to a neighborhood which is not well maintained, which has persistent infrastructural problems, which has lack of adequate supply of water, which has lack of adequate health and educational services, all of these things affect the lives of the girls and women in particular who live in these communities. So we have to be extremely clear that what happens in the city is not an eradication of caste, but the continuation of caste discrimination, albeit in more sophisticated forms. This is also true for religious discrimination. One example that came up multiple times, uh, both in the episodes with Dr. Naveen Bharati as well as Dr. Mohsin Alambhat, is the way in which the politics around food, are you a vegetarian or are you not, becomes a precondition for basic things like access to housing. This becomes a sophisticated way in which discrimination is practiced in the Indian city towards communities that have been traditionally marginalized under a Brahminical patriarchy. As Dr. Mohsin Alambhat discussed his work on the discrimination faced by Muslims in Indian cities in the rental housing market, point out the way in which Muslims in the city do not have access to housing the way that the rest are able to. And discrimination is not just the fact that it's far more difficult for you to find housing, which is a basic human right, but the fact that it's an extremely exhausting, demoralizing process. And access to housing is not just about your ability to find a house, but your ability to even access a network through which you could find a house. Now, in the course of this conversation, Dr. Mohsin Alambhat points out that for Muslim women and girls in particular, their identity as Muslim trumped their own identity as gender. Now, it is difficult for young women in any city to find housing, but it's not even remotely comparable to the kinds of problems Muslims in the city face in trying to access housing. So it's really important for us to understand that the fact is when we live in highly segregated neighborhoods, problems such as communal violence also arise. As Dr. Naveen Bharti points out in the episode where he talks about why communal riots are more likely in certain cities and not others, is the way in which a mixed neighborhood, which is by which I mean a diversity of population who don't belong to a specific community, caste or religion, but you know, is representative of say the constitution in our country's imagination of secularism, is that you don't grow up with people who are different from you. And when you grow up with people who are different from you, you learn to value and respect people who may be seen as the other, right? So the process of othering, the process of casting certain communities as the villains, as the people that we have to protect our girls as, is entirely an exercise in power as to who becomes included in the group who has to be protected and who becomes excluded in the group who are seen as the perpetrators. When, as I've mentioned, not just in this episode, but in multiple other episodes, the greatest perpetrators of violence against women and girls are families themselves, are intimate partners and male intimate partners in particular. So the problem is in our backyards. So we have to definitely 
definitely understand that gender discrimination cannot be seen as delinked from caste discrimination or religion based discrimination or discrimination based on access to resources as we've seen in the case of adivasi communities or in the case of transphobia or homophobia or queerphobia so we have to understand that gender and other social identities operate inseparably and intersectionality is essential because when we start looking at things in this manner where there are not neatly divided categories we start asking and answering questions that identity is extremely mutable it's constantly changing and therefore the focus has to shift on the material basis from which this kind of violence grows if you're somebody who has difficulty in accessing basic resources such as housing such as water such as sanitation then the lack of access to these is often a greater threat to your safety than a simple question of male violence because these are the ways in which the city renders certain classes of women more vulnerable than others and particularly those women whose work the city is actually exploiting as we've seen in the case of the paurakarmikas now this also brings us finally to the question of how then do we think about feminist urbanism how does that even look like in a constitutional framework now in answering this question i think my own understanding has grown significantly because in my conversation with deepa pawar i've learned that what might be seen as an issue of convenience for certain classes of women is an issue of um is an existential question for others a right to life question for others a right to public health question for others which is the case of say you know charging money to the use of public restrooms especially during the covid-19 pandemic where there has been widespread economic deprivation the fact that you would be charging money for the people who rely on public sanitation facilities as a necessity which is the most vulnerable populations in the city migrant workers and workers and slum dwelling communities where they might have to pay upwards of 80 to 100 rupees to use the washroom think about the elderly women in this community think about pregnant women in these communities the fact that this is something that is not a single priority is a shameful fact to me and so what does it mean to think about feminist urbanism why is it important to continue having these conversations and thinking about the city in this particular way as i've discussed the two themes that sort of came up to me is one the city is not a passive recipient or background in which these kinds of things happens but an active turf which allows and ensures that violence against women and girls and gender and sexual minorities can continue to persist and secondly that certain classes of women and girls are structurally more vulnerable because of caste based discrimination because of religion based discrimination because of the ableist nature of cities because of poverty discrimination on the basis of their gender or sexuality so it's important to understand that male violence against women or girls is not an interpersonal issue but a systemic issue where the invisible ways in which women and girls are constantly disadvantaged not only on the basis of gender but also community means that in responding to this question of what it means to be adopting a feminist urbanist approach requires us to critically rethink 
both the material basis of separation in the city as well as reorienting priorities as lawyers and those of us who are engaged in thinking about questions of the role of law and how the law how law can play a role in building equitable safe and fair societies my two cents in this question is that there is a crying need to reorient and challenge the established conventional wisdom the conventional wisdom has failed and continues to fail except it almost seems as if the failure is little reason to reconsider its own priorities the fact that time after time the conversation still goes back to stringent punishments excessive carceral approaches more policing when in fact it's often the policemen who are committing this violence uh when in fact surveillance infrastructure has significant problems when it comes to privacy of citizens in the country and is often very harmful to young people in cities in the first place doesn't seem to be reason enough to look elsewhere for responses and i think this is where there needs to be a reorienting for lawyers and policy makers away from criminal law and policing measures uh, to one that strongly engages with municipal governance and planning governance now constitutional guarantees and rights based discourses that emerge at the higher levels of the central government or the supreme court are amazing to read and celebrate but we have to be mindful that the realization of these rights are rooted in the day to day governance so your government order or a regulation or a rule passed by your local body or an urban local body a municipal corporation or in a municipality has a greater impact on your life than a ruling by the supreme court we need to be engaging with local politics significantly now what does this mean then in the context of engaging with the local bodies themselves the second level of reorientation is the priorities of urban development itself as long as we have a model of or a paradigm of urban development that is only focused on economic development and not people focused development as long as 50% of the population in your country or urban population in every city embodies a radically different body politics and you refuse to examine or even attempt to make cities for this population your model of city building and city planning is irrevocably broken this is not a question of accommodation it is a question of decentering able bodied cis upper caste or upper class men with 9 to 5 jobs and recentering women girls gender and sexual minorities instead now a prime example would be something as simple as a cursory examination of whether it's the transportation policy or the smart cities mission it's not enough to say that we need to build safer cities for women there has to be understanding as to what actually makes cities safer if your understanding is that police make cities safer or surveillance infrastructure or more stringent carceral approaches then that's a broken understanding and i think this is where a lot of the abolitionist movement that's been taking place in the us is extremely useful to think about where uh 
black americans in particular have been dealing with police violence for decades or centuries almost and a lot of the conversation has been bringing about reshaping the narrative around punitive or carceral justice to one of transformative or reformative justice which is that you invest in schools you invest in education you invest in ensuring that the conditions that render violence possible are abolished so this requires a reorientation of priorities this requires an understanding that if you choose to build a sustainable city where pollution becomes an issue you have to understand that women are the biggest users of non motorized forms of transportation women walk women use cycles and women are heavily reliant on public transportation such as public buses for instance so if your sustainable transportation policy is not feminist then it's not going to be a policy that's well designed because it doesn't understand who it's targeting therefore it's really important for us to not see these things as in in silos in order to build good cities in order to build traffic free pollution free ecologically sensitive cities we have to build equitable cities by addressing the needs of the most vulnerable populations of the city you are actually building a city that's going to be equal and fair this brings us to the question of the utopia itself right is this even possible now this is where i think i would draw on my conversation with prem chandavarkar who talked about the very disappointing and alarming way in which the central vista project has been executed by the central government in the national capital in defiance of every principle of procedural democracy now what does give me hope though is what he said about making incursions into space time based incursions into space community based incursions into space which means that even if the process of bringing about large scale reform is a slow and continuous one there is a lot of hope in undertaking these kinds of interventions in your local areas that is something that's really beautiful about a city because you don't have to go big you can start small you can start with a local public community if you have a public library in your neighborhood that's not functioning properly if you have a park in your neighborhood that is shut during the day if the local um, sanitation infrastructure such as a public toilet has only two restrooms is not accessible to persons with disability or is shut after a point in time these are things that maybe you can play a role in in writing to your counselors in getting involved in your local ward committee meetings and in pushing for greater decentralization in the context of planning and if you're a law student listening to this podcast i would highly encourage everybody to engage with those laws which may not seem as interesting at first glance which is something like planning and municipal laws labor laws or even the nitty gritties of uh, municipal finance for instance these are the laws that are extremely critical to be engaged with in order to realize the constitutionally guaranteed freedoms and rights that we you know study in law school and it's extremely important to adopt a multidisciplinary approach because often conventional wisdom what we have been told what we have been given isn't necessarily working 
So it's important to understand narratives that are emerging, research that's emerging in allied fields such as geography, sociology, and urban studies, and particularly feminist approaches in each of these fields, and working with architects and planners and creating cross-disciplinary alliances in order to solve some of these complex problems. So I have linked a lot of readings that I think might be useful for people listening to this podcast and I hope you will take some time off and go through them. I have to say that I have not been able to have all the conversations that I hope to over the course of this season but I'm hoping to cover the ones that I didn't get a chance to do in this season in the next season which will be coming up shortly. So if you are someone who is listening to this episode for the first time or if you are someone who has stayed with us through the course of the entire season then I have to say thank you. Thank you so much for your encouragement and feedback because this could not have been possible without you and I particularly want to thank all the amazing people who both agreed to come on board as guests on the podcast and who helped me out behind the scenes. We will be back with another season and hopefully bringing you interesting and extremely insightful conversations about cities from a feminist perspective and why we need to be adopting feminist urbanism. Please subscribe to our channel and share this podcast with people who you think may benefit from thinking about the city. 